We come again this Lord's Day to consider the comfort which God gives us by the oath which the Father swore to Him that He would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For God does comfort us by that oath that He made to Christ, appointing Him our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Because He is perfect, Christ is so far superior to all other priests who sin and die in their sins. That is why Jesus could offer Himself as a perfect sacrifice that takes away our sin. Christ has offered up Himself as our sin offering and intercedes to God for us forever. How dare anyone assign to sinful men, men with infirmities, the duties and powers and prerogatives of the Lord Jesus, who is our only high priest after the order of Melchizedek, Christ intercedes in the majesty of heaven for us, not in the shabby earthly tabernacles constructed by men. He fulfills the types and shadows of the Mosaic and the Aaronic system. Fundamental to the duties of a priest are the gifts and sacrifices they offer to God for the people. Under the law, Christ was not allowed to offer up animal sacrifices as those had already been assigned to Aaron. Therefore, in order to fulfill God's oath to Christ, promising His eternal priesthood, it was necessary that Christ have a better offering to bring unto God that He did when He offered up Himself as our sacrifice. Because Christ has obtained a better priesthood, He's the mediator of a better covenant established upon better promises. The old Mosaic covenant was based upon the promise Obey the law and live. But nobody could ever obey the law. And thus we all die. But the better new covenant is based upon the promise of God to His people to write His law in their hearts, to conform them to Himself, to forgive their crimes and to refuse to remember their sins against them anymore. Covenants in Scripture are often sealed with blood sacrifices the Mosaic Covenant was sealed with animal sacrifices at the foot of Mount Sinai. The people promised God they would obey all His commandments. And Moses sprinkled the people in the book with animal blood, calling it the blood of the covenant. They promptly broke that covenant in the incident of the golden calf just over a month later. But the better new covenant that Christ mediates was sealed by His blood at Calvary. Jesus told His disciples at the Lord's Supper that His was the blood of the new covenant shed for many for the forgiveness of sin. In the Mosaic covenant, the people promised God they would obey the law and then they broke their promise. In the better new covenant, God promises His people He will cause us to keep His commandments, He will forgive our sins and remember them against us no more. What did the blood of the Mosaic Covenant work? Nothing but condemnation. It witnessed against the people their disobedience and breaking of that covenant and the promise of death for their transgressions were sealed. But Christ's blood of the New Covenant actually executes and empowers its better promises. Christ's blood forgives our sins. Christ's shed blood works upon God's people to sanctify and cleanse them from all unrighteousness. It is the means by which we know the Lord and are brought little by little to keep His commandments.
Thus, the blood of the new covenant carries out not our condemnation, but rather our justification and sanctification by God. Christ's shed blood is no mere memorial of the better covenant. It is the power, the driver, the executor of the covenant. No wonder by God's oath to Christ we have a strong consolation, a great comfort in the perpetual priesthood promised to Him. All the glory of our salvation is wrapped up in that oath and in Christ's unique priesthood. It is our deliverance from the judgment of sin and from sin itself. All this is carried out by our great high priest who shed his precious blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And so we come this Lord's Day to consider Hebrews chapter 8's great recitation of the new covenant and a recapitulation of why it was necessary. We start reading at Hebrews 8 at verse 6. But now hath he, that is Christ, obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. So the first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant of life by keeping the law, was found to have fault. It was found to have fault. If it had been found faultless, there'd be no need for a new covenant. But... There is a fault found in the old covenant, isn't there? And it comes from the promise of the old covenant, obey the law and live, break the law and suffer the curse of the law, which is the promised and actual wrath of God in judgment against all disobedience. And we might ask, well, what's wrong with that covenant? Seems fair, doesn't it? What's wrong with it is none of us can obey the law perfectly. We all fall into the sin of coveting, idolatry. That's where we elevate anything above God in our love and worship and obedience. Hatred. Remember Jesus said that whenever you have hatred against someone, you've done murder in your heart. And most of all, the lack of a perfect love for God because the chief commandment of the law Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, body, and strength, and thy neighbor as thyself. That's the second commandment. And none of us can keep that law perfectly in anything we do. And that's why we come to understand that everything a lost man does is a sin against the law. Martin Luther discovered this when he noticed that every time he kept the law, there was an element of pride in it. And there was a mental toting up of a reason why he should be just before God. And so the reason became itself a poison and threw down and dashed into pieces all of his hopes of ever keeping any point of the law at all. You can see why he was under such great stress psychologically and why the discovery of salvation by faith, righteousness by faith, imputed to the believer, the righteousness of God imputed to the believer by faith and not by works was such a great and astounding comfort to him. The blessings, you see, of the old covenant depend on our obedience. They depend on our promise to keep the law. And then we cannot keep the law. And so the blessings are taken away and the curses are laid upon us. 
But notice that the writer of Hebrews puts a good point on the question of where was the failure of the law? Why wasn't it faultless? And why did therefore there need to be a second law or a new covenant? At verse 8, for finding fault with them, God saith, finding fault with the people under the law, there's where the fault really lies, isn't it? Nothing wrong with the old covenant per se. It's a promise by God. It's just. It's fair. It certainly will be kept. The problem is the fault is in us because we can't keep the law. The fault is found in them. The reason for the articulation of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 by God to the prophet Jeremiah is that he finds fault with the people that he loves and wants to save. Finding fault with them, and then he cites the passage. He says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant. And I regarded them not, saith the Lord. God lays the blame squarely on the people of Israel because they didn't keep the covenant. And this is after he had brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. He had redeemed them from the evil tyranny of Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. He had redeemed them from it. He had rescued them. He had brought them out with great power. You remember the plagues. You remember the striking of the firstborn down on Passover night and the protection of the Lord's people by the blood of the Lamb signified on the doorposts. Do you remember the great parting of the Red Sea? After all that God had done for them and showed His mighty power to them, they still wouldn't keep His covenant, would they? They wouldn't keep His commandments. So the fault lay in them, not in God, but it necessitated if there was to be good done to God's people, it would have to be by a different way than by the old covenant of the law. He would make a new covenant. And it wouldn't be like the one that He made with them at the beginning. For you see, the law is perfect and holy and just. The problem is with us. We are the ones who are disobedient. The law tells us God's standard of righteousness and holiness. And by experience, we learn that we cannot live up to that righteousness and holiness. We cannot keep the law that we ought to keep. Paul in Romans 3 said, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If the law is perfect and shows us God's righteousness and holiness, you see then when we disobey the law, we fall short of the glory of God. We fail to live up to the, to the requirements of God's law which He has laid upon us and for which obedience He has promised us blessing but for which disobedience He has promised us cursing. And therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified for by the law is the knowledge of sin, Paul said in Romans 3.20. There is no justification for us in keeping the Old Covenant or obeying the Old Covenant. All it does is just expose our guiltiness, doesn't it? It exposes 
our crimes. Paul in Galatians 3 puts it this way, the purpose of the old covenant, the law, is to be our tutor to bring us unto Christ. We learn to flee to Jesus for our righteousness because the law forces us to Him for in the law there is found for us no righteousness at all. You remember in Galatians 3 at verse 21, Paul writes, Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given that could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. So the law is technically necessary and good to give us life if we'll only obey it. It tells us what the standard is, doesn't it? But the Scripture hath concluded that all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. So everyone is condemned as a sinner by the law. And that closes the door to obtaining life and salvation by the law keeping. It slams it shut, doesn't it? And if people didn't understand that by their own experience, then Paul is making it clear to them now that the only way to righteousness and therefore life is by faith of Jesus Christ that we might receive life, forgiveness, and freedom from Him and not by keeping the law. And then he says at verse 23, but before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterward be revealed, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster, you might call that a tutor, to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. So the law is a cruel teacher, isn't it? Because it teaches us that we're failures, that we're sinners, that we're disobedient, that we're unclean, that we can't obtain righteousness by obeying God, that we cannot make ourselves acceptable to God. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with him, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they continued not in my covenant and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. Israel having displayed for all the world to see the intractable nature of man's sin, that it is incorrigible and we cannot and will not act in our own best interests by obeying God. So here is a promise of life and blessing and forgiveness and righteousness and if we'll only keep the law and nobody keeps it. And so it's like a demonstration, it's like a test case Israel is like a laboratory experiment to show that even if it's in your own best interest to obey God, you still won't. Why? Because of that fallen sin nature, the lust of the flesh, and so forth. And it got so bad that in the Old Testament, in Hosea chapter 1, we see God saying to the people of Israel, that is the northern tribes that had apostatized much earlier, you're not my people and I'm not your God anymore. Not my people. I'm not your God. You know, the deal's off. You've broken the covenant. It's irretrievable. But then he does say later on that in the same place where I said that, I'll say that you are my people and I am your God. So there is a promise of restoration and salvation even to the people who have 
violated the covenant so horribly and so consistently and for so long that God considers them no longer His people and He no longer their God. But now you see, He discloses His new covenant, His new promises, that brings in salvation, not by our own works, but by God's unilateral promise to us. The new covenant is not like the old covenant, the covenant I made with Israel at Mount Sinai. That's what it says there. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. It's going to be a new covenant. It's going to be different. It's not going to be so congruent one to the other. And it's not like the covenant I made at the exit of the people from Egypt because they didn't keep it. That's the reason it's going to have to be different. We tried the works of the law and demonstrated the futility of it. Now you know the Lord knew that that it was futile. He put that over them as Paul said as a schoolmaster. They're shut up under the law until the faith of Jesus Christ is revealed. They didn't keep it. Now recently I've been reading through Second Chronicles toward the end where the idolatry and the child sacrifice and the desecration of the temple and the mass murder by King Manasseh finally became too much and God promised an exile of the people and their utter judgment and overthrow. This is the final outcome of Israel failing to keep the old covenant that the, the crimes pile up so deep and there's no sacrifice for them under the old covenant, is there? There's no way to escape. And so the new covenant is very different. Very different indeed. It's all of God. It's all God's promise to us. None of our promise to Him. Therefore, we can't break the new covenant because there's no promise that we make when God puts us under it. It's unilateral. It's not of our work at all. In Hebrews 8 at verse 10, we read of this glorious new covenant, which he's quoting from Jeremiah 31, which we read earlier this Lord's Day. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. You see, God promises changed hearts. He promises changed hearts. In substitution for their promise to keep the law, God promises to change their hearts. He promises to write His law upon their hearts and in their minds so that they will know the law. He promises an inward knowledge of God's law will be placed upon the people in His new covenant. He promises He will once again be their God and they will be His people. So here we see under the new covenant, there is God's owning His people under the new covenant as being His people. His claiming them to be His people. And His acknowledging before the world, these are My people. These are My people whom I've redeemed under My new covenant based upon my promise to them, not based upon their promises to me, not based upon their obedience to me, 
And of course, it goes the other way too. His people, because of these changes to their hearts by the power of God, through the Spirit of God, because of this knowledge that He places in our hearts by His power and by the Spirit, why then we will own Him as God. We will claim Him to be our God. We will acknowledge Him as our God. We will be subject to Him as our God. It's not just a, an intellectual acknowledgement. God will work in us a submission of our minds and hearts to Him as God. A ready submission. All under the covenant will know the Lord from the greatest to the smallest. It will not be once God has put you in this new covenant and made this agreement to you about what He will do for you you see, there's no need to evangelize again to these people as if they don't know this already because they already know these things because God has worked this in their hearts. And this is what's so stupid about some covenant theology positions where they put people in the new covenant who don't know God and who don't have changed hearts and who aren't able to acknowledge that He is their God. They put people who are infants into the new covenant when God hasn't made this change in them. And they also put adults in the new covenant by some sort of system of baptism, of mass baptism of the whole nation, or just delegation by the ruler of the nation that this is a Christian nation. Everyone in this nation is Christian now. They pretend all those people are in the new covenant, not according to the work of God, but according to their declaration according to some sacrament that they've administered and so forth. This change to the people whom God has put in His new covenant, whom God has made this new covenant promise to, is a real change. It becomes an observable change. And it's not something that you or I or the government or the church can just declare to be true of anybody. It's all God's promise. It's not ours. And notice this uniting of all the people under the true God. That all the people will know Him from the greatest to the smallest. So you see, in, in terms of those who are in the new covenant, there will be a unity in bowing down to the true God and in worshiping Him and trusting in Him for all things. There won't be any distinction with regard to those people's position in this world, in this life, money, riches, power, fame, or poverty, obscurity, none of those things will make any difference between the quality of what God has done to His people in His new covenant. It is not a creation of man. It is not going to be imposed by some church-state situation as men have tried to do over the centuries ever since the Lord Jesus was crucified. These are the works of God unilaterally on His people. Not some mechanistic scheme imposed by the will of man. It is in our hearts wrought by the marvelous work of God in us for the sake of His covenant being executed. Now the keystone, of course, is verse 12. For I will be merciful 
to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. He will be merciful towards our unrighteousness. Under the old covenant, there wasn't any real mercy for unrighteousness. There was the curse, which was the promise of judgment, ultimately eternal judgment by God for those who broke the law. But now you see the curse is taken away. If God is to be merciful in our unrighteousness, that means he's taking away the judgment. He's taking away the wrath. He's having compassion on us, isn't he? He's giving us forgiveness of our sin, he says. Their iniquities will I remember no more against them. You see, that's all contrary to the promises of the old covenant. And these promises are forever and will not be revoked. The reader might ask, how will these things be? <laughs> like Nicodemus, how can these things be? How can God take away the promised judgment and wrath for sin, which he promised under the old covenant? How can he just take it away? Won't he be violating his promise of the old covenant? But remember that Christ as our high priest is the, the mediator of this better covenant made upon better promises and His sacrifice is Himself offered up on the cross by which He executes and empowers the promises of this new covenant. These better promises of forgiveness and of sanctification and of change inwardly and outwardly these are all empowered by the blood sacrifice which Jesus made as our high priest. And Hebrews has already described that Christ died for his people, that Christ offered up himself, that was his superior sacrifice as our superior high priest. But it was the new covenant that was in view in Hebrews 7, which we already covered, of course, but remember these verses, Hebrews 7:11. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? See, this is a, a foreshadowing of what the writer in Hebrews 8 says, that fault was found in the Old Covenant. Fault was found. It said, if there had been perfection by the Levitical priesthood, wouldn't need a new priest, would we? For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by which we draw nigh unto God. So here he had already gone into the fact that the old commandments, the old covenant, the old law was not profitable. It was too weak and too unprofitable for it to continue to reign. Something better would have to be offered in its place because the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did. There is perfection offered and promised under this new covenant. By the new covenant, God removes from us the promised judgment for our sins and is merciful to our unrighteousness and forgives us of our sins. Now we know, because we've read ahead, we know that this is 
carried out, it's executed by Christ's bloody offering in our place, don't we? But logically, in the book of Hebrews, the writer will explain it in chapters 9 and 10. How it is that Christ's sacrifice executes the new covenant. How it is that Christ can die in the place of His people to take away their sins. How He can satisfy the demands of the old covenant against us, but do it in our place and not upon our own heads. Paul puts all of this clearly in Romans chapter 8 where we read, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. So there is the way by which the substitution of Christ as our sacrifice and as our high priest takes away, defeats the law of sin and death by satisfying the requirements of God's law for us so that we might be set free. The judgment for our sin was executed upon the Lord Jesus so we cannot be condemned for our sin being laid on Jesus and the Holy Spirit will guide us into obedience the wrath and judgment already satisfied by the death of Jesus in our place. So what Paul teaches in Romans 8 at verse 1-4 to you see is a theological explanation for how the terms of the new covenant come to be carried out. They're carried out in the death of Jesus on our behalf. The old covenant is done away for us in Christ. And we see this in Hebrews 8 at verse 13. In that He saith, that is the Lord saith, a new covenant He hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Notice that the writer is suggesting that the, the new covenant supersedes the old covenant. The new covenant is better than the old covenant. It's based on better promises. The old covenant is made old because there is a new covenant. I used to have a professor who was always criticizing people in writing outlines. He said, wherever there is an A, there must be a B. Otherwise, you don't have an outline, do you? You just have a proposition. So wherever there's a new covenant, there has to be an old covenant, doesn't there? But here's the point I want to make. The old covenant of salvation and life by keeping the law is not to be rehabilitated. It is replaced for the believer. Now, unbelievers may still be judged under the old covenant if they don't come under the new covenant, if they have not received the mercy of the Lord. If God hasn't made them His people, they may still well be condemned by the old covenant because it condemns everyone, doesn't it? Everyone that is under it is condemned unless the Lord Jesus has rescued them from the penalty and from the curse. But there are false teachers about today who basically try to teach this. No, the old covenant is still in effect. 
It's just been recast a little bit. And uh, the Holy Spirit will help us to keep the law. So in the end, we are saved by law keeping. That's what they teach. Now, some of these are just, for the most part, Roman Catholic false teachers. That's basically their religion. Sure, there's grace. You can't be saved without grace. There's justification by the baptism you receive. But then you got to keep the law. If you don't keep the law, then you got to keep these rituals and ordinances and masses and reconciliations and confessions and penance. And you got to do all these things. And you really won't ever know whether you're saved in the end until you get to heaven, will you? Because at any moment you might slip up and break the law and you'll be back under the curse again. So you see, really all they've done is just annexed a few changes or updates to the Old Covenant. And they've tried to keep it alive and keep being judged by it. And then their Seventh-day Adventists, some of them believe in righteousness by law-keeping and all kind of worldly religions. Most of Orthodox Judaism still is basically a covenant of works type. We keep the law. Oh, we have grace to help us, but it's still we have to keep the law to some degree or another. And that's where the dispute comes about as to which points of the law and how can we weasel out of the hard ones and uh, so forth and so on, you know, what the Pharisees did. But all of these are false teachers. They've all missed the point that the old covenant is obsolete and cannot be rehabilitated. God doesn't promise us that He will help us to keep the old covenant so that after all, we will be saved by obedience to the law. Some people even teach sinless perfection, don't they? Some people who seem to not be rooted firmly in reality teach sinless perfection. But I'm thinking particularly of people who will proclaim that everyone's saved by trusting in Jesus and that that's how we're justified, but ultimately we're only saved by keeping the law. And they like to say, well, of course it's keeping the law by the Spirit, not the works of the law by the flesh. But all of which makes no difference because what they're doing, you see, is we obtain life by keeping the law by the Spirit or by grace, they falsely teach. But that is not what the New Covenant teaches at all, is it? The New Covenant teaches that we will be sanctified to keep God's commandments, but that's the result of our justification, not its cause. At base, the reason we're justified is because God doesn't remember our sins against us anymore. He declares us righteous for Jesus' sake because Jesus paid all the price of our sins on Calvary's tree. So any law-keeping that we do, which is still incomplete, imperfect, and before God as filthy rags, it must be. You see, God's promise to us is no longer do this and live. That's not God's promise to us. God's promise is not do this and live. That's the old covenant, which can only damn us, and which is taken away for us by the new covenant. It is not rehabilitated It is not tinkered with. It does not have the Holy Spirit bolted onto the side to help us to keep it and live by it. What did Ephesians 2 say? What did Paul tell the Ephesians? For by grace you are saved through faith. 
And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So any pretense at rehabilitating the old covenant, keeping it going, adding new life to it, annexing the Holy Spirit's work to it so that He helps us to keep the old covenant and therefore we're saved by law keeping for righteousness is an offense to the Scriptures. It's a denial of what the Scriptures teach. It's another gospel that God curses, that God puts His curse upon. But you see why God's oath to Christ to be a priest forever for us brings us such great consolation and comfort. The Lord Jesus by His sacrifice and faithful priesthood has rescued us from the old covenant. The law of sin and of death. And saved us by His obedience and by His bloodshedding. And our sins are forgiven. And God is our God and we are His people. And He puts our law in our hearts and works obedience in us to His glory and to His grace. And I follow the words of that hymn that we used to sing a lot by Nicholas von Zinzendorf. Jesus, Thy blood and righteousness, My beauty are, My glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Bold shall I stand in thy great day. For who ought to my charge shall lay? Fully absolved through these I am from sin and fear from guilt and shame. Lord, I believe thy precious blood, which at the mercy seat of God forever doth for sinners plead for me even for my soul was shed. Let us not take any hope from the promises of the old covenant for it has been superseded by the new covenant promises. Unilateral promises by God to take away our sin, to change our hearts, to write His law upon our hearts and to work in us a justification and a sanctification all to His glory. So this is why we have such great comfort in God's promise to Christ that He will be our great high priest of a great new covenant. And as we come to the Lord's table where we celebrate what Jesus did to carry out the new covenant, He said that night, this is My body which is given for you. This is My blood of the new covenant shed for many for the remission of sin. And in Hebrews chapter 9, the writer will explain how it is that Christ's blood shed on the cross executes the new covenant and forgives us of our sin. But we know how that works. But we'll study that perhaps next Lord's Day. Well, let's give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. O oh God, our Father, we rejoice in what Your dear Son did for us when He went to the cross and laid down His life for His people and loved His people to the end. His body was offered as a sacrifice. It took the place of all the animal sacrifices who could never take away sin. 
But His one sacrifice forever has forever cleansed His people, has forever perfected us because He was that perfect Lamb of God that you sit without any flaw, without any blemish, without any spot at all. And we praise You that He left us this little feast to remind us of what He did. Not that the bread or the wine is His body or His blood physically or actually, but it is a picture that reminds us, that points us to the real body and blood of Christ which He delivered up as an offering for sin for His people and by which we are redeemed. And we thank You for the bread that pictures that body torn for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scriptures tell us that on the night the Lord Jesus was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it. And He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Let's give thanks for the cup. I'd like to ask my father if he'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed for the remission of our sin. And the Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 144 in the Black Book, Charles Spurgeon's hymn, Amidst us our beloved stands and bids us view His pierced hands, points to the wounded feet inside, blessed emblems of the crucified. 144.